listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, I'm so excited to welcome Cass Sunstein, author of the book, Sludge, What Stops Us From Getting Things Done and What to Do About It. Before we start, I want to remind you that Skylight Books is currently open, but we are following the current CDC mandate. So please, please, please don't forget to bring your masks when you come in. But other than that, come on by and just be respectful of both the employees and the customers around you. Our website is also uh, available for online ordering and to either ship the books to you or pick them up in store. Cass R. Sunstein is currently the Robert Walmsley University Professor at Harvard. He's the founder and director of the Program on Behavioral Economics in Public Policy at Harvard Law School. In 2018, he received the Holberg Prize from the government of Norway, sometimes described as the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for Law in the Humanities. In 2020, the World Health Organization appointed him as chair of uh, a chair of its technical advisory group on behavioral insights in science for, sciences for health. From 2009 to 2012, he was administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. And after that, he served on the President's Review Board on Intelligence and Communications Technologies and on the Pen- Pentagon's Def- Defense Innovation Board. Mr. Sunstein has testified before congressional committees on many subjects, and he has advised officials at the United Nations, the European Commission, the World Bank, and many nations on issues of law and public policy. He serves as an advisor to the Behavioral Insights team in the United Kingdom. Mr. Sunstein is author of hundreds of articles and dozens of books, including Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness, Simpler, The Future of Government, The Ethics of Influence, uh, Republic, Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide, The Cost-Benefit Revolution, On Freedom, Conformity, How Change Happens, and Too Much Information. He is now working on a variety of projects involving the regulatory state sludge, fake news, and freedom of speech. Hi, Cass. It's so great to have you on. Uh, Hi, it's a great pleasure to be here. No problem. No, we're, I'm so excited for this. It's going to be such a great podcast. I I read uh, I read the book. I read about the book, and I just when we first uh, just, like found out we were having you on, and I was like, wow, this is going to be a great episode. I'm very very excited to like talk about this because this is such an important issue. Okay, well, I'll read a little bit if I may from yeah the book, for sure, and I'll keep it in a way that is. Um, Uh, focus on the highlights. 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, so if you look at a definition of sludge, you might find the following thick, soft, wet mud or a similar viscous mixture. So I'm going to be talking about a viscous mixture of the sort uh, that we face in life when we deal with friction or burdens or barriers that separate us from, let's say, a good relationship to a cell phone company, a return on a product that doesn't work, a benefit from the government, medical help, or something else. And I can explain this, I think, by a story, a tale, and then by a number. So the story comes from not long ago when I asked students at a large university about the health care that they received. I asked them what could make their health care plan better. Two of them in a small group singled out the problem of mental health. They said that to make an appointment for a mental health problem, they had to make a bunch of phone calls and fill out a lot of paperwork. They added that the problem of mental illness is stigmatized, and when you're suffering, the last thing you want to do is handle a lot of phone calls and complicated paperwork. One of them said that after a world of frustration, she decided she couldn't handle the sludge. She gave up. That's my story. The number is 11.4 billion. That's the number of hours of federal paperwork mandated by the US government. 11.4 billion hours. That's imposed on patients on doctors, on nurses, on truck drivers, on small business operators, on people seeking to get money that they're legally entitled to so they can get educated, on people who are trying to run some kind of operation that might employ lots of people, on people who are trying to get employed. Let's pause, shall we, over that 11.4 billion hour figure. If we took every resident of Chicago and said for all of next year, everyone in Chicago has to spend 40 hours a week doing one thing, filling out federal forms. By the end of those 365 days, the 2.7 million residents of Chicago will not have come within 4 billion hours of the annual paperwork burden placed by the US government on Americans. In all likelihood, your life, and I'm speaking to you, listener, has been made worse because of sludge. Frictions that prevent you doing, from doing what you want to do, or from going where you want to go. In many cases, sludge imposes economic harm. In other cases, it damages health. In the worst case, it kills literally. It cripples economic growth. It decreases employment and stifles innovation. It hurts parents, teachers, doctors, employees, customers, investors, inventors, and developers. It compromises fundamental rights, including the right to vote and the right to be free from discrimination on the basis of race and sex. It's a pervasive source of inequality in our society. 
Sludge is also an assault on human dignity. Confronting it and having to overcome it creates a sense of humiliation. If sludge stops you from voting or from getting a license to do business, you might feel as if you don't count. People who don't have a lot of money struggle with sludge. It hurts every one of us. It hurts Bill Gates. But if you are sick, old, disabled, or poor, or if you don't have a lot of education, sludge is a curse. It's everywhere in our lives. The good news is that as part of the response to the COVID pandemic of recent uh, months, more than that, over a year, the US waged a war on sludge. Hardly anyone noticed, but it happened. Let me pause for a moment, if I may, while we're recording and ask my family. The good news is that as part of the response to the COVID pandemic, and there isn't a lot of good news there, but here is some, the US waged a war on sludge. Most people didn't notice, but it happened. For example, telemedicine was authorized widely by the Department of Health and Human Services. Instead of face-to-face -face visit requirements, telemedicine was allowed. The Internal Revenue Service backed off on a requirement that people have to file tax returns to qualify payments under a law that gave them a right to payments. Instead, under public pressure, the Department of Treasury reversed course and said that Social Security recipients would receive the money automatically. Under a program formerly known as food stamps involving supplemental nutrition assistance, people have long had to complete in-person interviews to be approved for benefits. The United States Department of Agriculture waived that requirement. It gave blanket approval to states to give out benefits to people who are entitled to them, even without an interview. Every year is a good year for a war on sludge, but in the context of a pandemic, administrative burdens are clearly going to cause hardship. Sludge removal might not seem the highest priority in a period of pandemic or in other periods, but it can make all the difference between relative comfort and acute hardship. And in the last year plus, that's been very obvious. True, it's a stretch to see sludge reduction as a complement to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but it's not all that much of a stretch. All over the world, nations should be making an aggressive across the board attack on sludge to increase jobs, to promote education, to promote voting, to allow people to get license and permits, and to protect public health. The last year, we have, I think, a clear answer to a very time-honored question, which is what is the most precious commodity that human beings have? That's often asked. What's the most precious thing we have? In the context of what people have struggled with, including for many of us, the loss of loved ones, the answer to the question, I think, is uh, more straightforward than it's typically been. The answer to the question, what's the most precious commodity we, commodity we have, is a four-letter word, and it's a condition for everything else.
time. Let's find, shall we, ways to give fellow members of the human race more of that. Thank you. Thank you, Cass. That was great. Um, and everything you said there just resonated very hard, especially after this past year. Um, no, this book, I just, I mean, it was something that like, when I first read up on it, it's, it's something everyone deals with. It's something I've seen my parents deal with. I had to deal with in adulthood. You see in almost every facet of like, life now and what you're doing but you don't think about it because I feel like there's a sort of we give up when we think about the we think about like the paperwork immediately it's like embedded in our society to like see complicated paperwork and be like eh what can I do kind of mentality um so yeah I was like wow this is this is big this is a big problem um the first thing I want to talk about is like with with all of the sludge, with all of these things that deter people from, you know, prospering, basically, how much of it is rooted in, you know, discrimination and, you know, I mean, redlining, of course, but like redlining from like discrimination and classism and all of these isms. <laughs> well, okay, so I worked in the US government under President Obama, I'm working in the US government under President Biden, and I see sludge creation kind of in real time. And often the idea is you wanna make sure people who are seeking benefits are entitled to them. So it's completely innocuous and not discriminatory. I say often, I don't say always, it's completely innocuous. But often the idea is if you're gonna give people, let's say uh, economic help, you want to make sure that they are, have a right to it. And that means they have to fill out forms. Sometimes those forms are extremely hard to navigate for anyone, and especially hard to navigate, let's say, if you're struggling with an illness or old age or um, poverty. And it, given the fact that poverty can be correlated with race, and sometimes even illness is correlated with race, there will be a racially discriminatory impact. Mm -hmm. And often uh, women, and particularly often women of color, are facing mm -hmm. disproportionate burdens. They are the bearers of sludge, which mm -hmm. means that there will be race and sex discrimination often combined when people have to fill out a lot of stuff in order to get benefits for their kids to which they're legally entitled. So I'm discussing cases where there's no intention to discriminate, but mm -hmm. in fact, it's a discriminatory impact. So that's a class of cases. There are other cases where, and these are less lovely than what I've described, what I just mm -hmm. described isn't lovely, but I'm gonna describe something less lovely. When designers, let's say in state or local government have a program that is uh, mostly benefiting maybe people of color, but they're not excited about that fact. And they know that if they impose administrative burdens and barriers, long waiting time, let's say, or a questionnaire with 72 questions in it, that it, it will come down particularly hard on identifiable populations. Mm -hmm. And they might know that and, and not hate it, or some of them actually may be okay with it. 
and the kind of gripping, most gripping example I think that we've seen is at least at some times and places in our country, and I want to bracket the recent years to make it as non-political as possible, but at some points in our country, uh, sludge has been a way of preventing identifiable people from voting. And the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was in part a, a sludge reduction act. So the things like literacy tests and other things where the real motivation was to prevent identifiable groups from voting or at least to make it harder for them, but that, that wouldn't happen anymore. It would happen either not at all or, or much less. So we can go area by area. When companies say, for example, that you have to mail in a form in order to get a rebate, they kind of know that a lot of people aren't going to mail in that form. Right. And there they might think, I don't care from whom I benefit economically. I just want to benefit economically. And I know I'm going to. And there there's no you know, discrimination in it. There's just a profit motive. But there's something not good in it, which is the sludge and the uh, benefiting from the sludge. But in, in other cases, there's uh, knowledge that certain groups are going to be hurt. And people might not mind that, which is, I think, not good. They should mind that. Uh, in the worst cases, and this is, I think, the implication of your question is correct, people might like the fact that there's going to be a, a, a discriminatory impact. Well, it seems like, I mean, one thing that I have seen from, you know, people close to me and um, people close to me in this past year and people who, you know, are surrounded me because I, you know, because of work, people, especially in the service industry or people who were, you know, really living paycheck to paycheck where like things like unemployment was huge. There was a huge rise in unemployment where a lot of people were, were not able to get it because of paperwork, because of specific terminology and paperwork that they might've gotten wrong. And, you know, it feels for a lot of people unnecessary. You know what I mean? Some of these paperworks, some of the stuff they're filling out feels just like, you know, heavy, just a bunch of like words put in there for no reason. And then there's like the fact that some things are on the computers that people don't have access to. Some things, some of the paperwork, they just don't have access to getting, they only hear about it. Or some of the, the ways to send it in, they might have to go into an office especially where this year people don't want it. You can't, you couldn't really be out as much. How has, um, you know, the pandemic revealed a lot more of the impact, the, the social impact of sludge in our society? It's, it's a great question. So uh, here are two problems with sludge. And let's uh, get to the pandemic in a moment. So mm -hmm. just a regular person trying to live your life and to get something from your employer or from the government or from the university, you have to do something, like fill out forms and go somewhere. Mm -hmm. You might think that's, that's a problem for me because I've got a lot of things to do and to fill out those forms is not fun and is really hard. And to go to that place, I don't have time for that. So that's the simplest case, but human beings don't, calculate, we might think, you know, I'll do it tomorrow and tomorrow never comes. Or we might think, um, 
I want to do what I do most days. I don't want to do that other thing. The behavioral science word is inertia for this and mm -hmm. human beings benefit or suffer from inertia. And that means we're not calculating machines. We sometimes procrastinate and we sometimes suffer and benefit from inertia. And procrastination, inertia, and sludge, that's a terrible combination. And then, then, then there's one other point, which is that if you are poor or old or sick or busy, there's something that you suffer from, which is you don't have a lot of bandwidth in your life. So if you're struggling, let's say with a heart problem or with a kid who's sick and maybe you're a single parent, or if you're old and your mind isn't working as well as it used to, or if you're poor and you're just struggling to make ends meet, the idea of handling a bureaucratic nightmare, that's really something out of a Stephen King novel. Mm -hmm. It's not something that is manageable. It's, it's horror. And you might say, I'm just not going to do it. And if you put together, you know, the first case, just ordinary people are balancing things. The sludge might be unmanageable. Then given we're even ordinary people, we procrastinate and we might suffer from inertia. Then sludge becomes worse still. And if you're suffering from poverty or old age or real busyness or some sort of disability, then, oh my gosh, the sludge is like a wall between right. me and something. Okay, that's background. Now think of a pandemic. In the context of pandemic, you have people who are scared, who are in many cases homebound, who in many cases are, are either sick or near someone who's sick. And I, I'll confess, I speak personally here. Fortunately, I haven't lost anyone in my family, but I had someone very close in my family who was very sick with COVID for a short time. And I'll add, I was very sick, very sick with COVID for more than two weeks, not oh, hospitalized, but, but crazy sick. Now, if you ask me, and I was a lucky one, I wasn't hospitalized, I wasn't nearly killed, but I was really sick. If you ask me or my family members around that time, fill out forms or go for an in-person interview to get something that maybe is necessary, good luck with that. It might be that you're not really allowed to go out much if you're quarantined. And then maybe you have help from your family, but maybe you don't. And I personalize this. Thank you for your indulgence in that. But what I had is a very small percentage of what many, many, many thousands of people had. And to ask them to navigate sludge to get economic or medical help or educational help or some kind of other help from their employer or university or uh, state or local government or the federal government, that's, that's a bridge too far. And now we're, we're talking about sludge as um, you know, a very severe problem. And in the worst cases, people die because of sludge. Mm -hmm. And that's the sense in which pandemic, the pandemic has put the problem of sludge in extremely sharp relief. I can say that uh, I started the book before the pandemic, mm -hmm. but I finished the book during the pandemic and it kind of, it, it energized this particular author. And I mean, from what you, I mean, from what you're saying too, I feel like it's fostered these deaths and um, tragedy. And honestly, before that too, like just people, 
you know, not being allowed stuff, the gatekeeping that Sludge, you know, emboldens. Like, it seems like, I mean, I not even Which seems like, I know. Let me ask my boy to be quiet. No problem. Sorry about that. No problem. So yeah, um, yeah, from all these deaths and um, tragedies caused by, you know, the sludge in our, in our system, our societal systems, it seems like it has caused a lot of mistrust in our leaders and our government. But it seems like but it also seems like, um, you know, eliminating a lot of it, making it easier for access to all of these things would give back some of that trust to the, the people. We, we, would, we would feel like our government is actually, you know, helping us, being there for us if they eliminated, if they made it easier for us to get access to things. But why is, the, why is it the case that they're making it harder, making it less accessible? I, I should say, I'm. Um speaking uh, in my capacity as author, but I am mm -hmm. in my day job, I'm working for the government and mm -hmm. a lot of efforts are ongoing to reduce sludge. Mm -hmm. This is a, a, a very serious enterprise by right. the US government. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, it doesn't matter really whether the president is Republican or Democrat along this one dimension that the people who work there who don't have particular political affiliation mm -hmm. uh, have been aware in the context of the pandemic that sludge can be a serious problem. These right. are people whose job it is to work in that department, who, who knows what their political affiliation is, but they want mm -hmm. their programs to be available. And mm -hmm. under circumstances where people are sick and scared and not able to go in person mm -hmm. without fear or maybe uh, they just can't because of their family circumstance. Interview requirements have been eliminated, forms mm -hmm. have been simplified, a great deal has been done. Mm -hmm. Not as much as should be, in my view. Mm -hmm. But all, all over our country, people have been taking significant steps towards sludge reduction. And telemedicine is just one example where mm -hmm. something that was heavily regulated and pervaded by sludge is at least freed up significantly. Partly because mm -hmm. people see if you're you know, caring for, let's say an elderly relative, the idea of going in to a doctor's office, mm -hmm. it's not that easy. And if you can just uh, do what we're doing now and talk to a doctor and say, I got something that hurts on my arm, what should I do about it? And the doctor looks at it and says, oh, looks like you have a sprain. I have two two things for you to do. That's right. it seems small, but it's beautiful because then the elderly relative isn't left alone, and the governments of multiple kinds have been very alert to that. My mm -hmm. hope is that we will see at governments at all levels uh, in in this country a very sustained uh, effort to scrutinize sludge. I call it sludge audits. But to audit the existing level of sludge and to reduce it where it's not justified. And this is, a, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. The, uh, the war on sludge is, um, we're having early battles, but, but my hope and expectation is 
that if we're all alert to it, even the term sludge itself uh, it concentrates the mind. It's a, I hope it's a little bit funny as well as a little bit disgusting. And mm. so as you were saying, if we see that waiting time at some place where things should go quickly, let's say mm. the or, or a driver's license, if it mm. takes two hours to get your driver's license rather than just getting mailed to you, there, there had better be a reason for that. Right. Or, or if you're trying to get help for some medical problem and the forms you're filling out are incomprehensible and endless and you can't answer them, mm. we should all be able to complain about that. Yeah. And I mean, it seems like, yeah, we should be able to complain and, you know, have our voices heard too, because it's something that, I mean, have you seen like an impact from, you know, social media has been very vocal about it. The the kids even have been like talking about it on like uh, platforms like TikTok and, you know, especially after everything that happened with the Black Lives Matter movement last year and the um, AAPI uh, movement, our movement this year. And, you know, just people talking about how these forms of these, these, these processes have deterred them in a way that it seems like, um, it seems in a way that it's like, there could be an easier method. Has that, have you seen that push, you know, affect a lot of change too? Absolutely. So, uh, the Office of Management and Budget recently released a report on equity in which it had various findings about equity. And finding number two was that administrative burdens are a source of inequity in our society. Mm -hmm. Now that's um, very dramatic in its way, in the mm -hmm. sense that to see a relationship between administrative burdens and social justice, that's new. I mean, I worked for President Obama, we kind of saw it, but it wasn't something that was, uh, that had the degree of centrality that it does now. And I think you're right that the pandemic is in a way a spur. Mm -hmm. Because if you see that, you know, you're a truck driver, even under circumstances of pandemic, and the sludge you have to go through to be a truck driver mm -hmm. is making it really hard for you to do your job, you might think, look, I'm, I'm kind of a hero here. I'm transporting stuff under circumstances where people need it. And mm -hmm. I'm in some ways risking myself. And you're asking me to do this and that, this and that. Mm -hmm. For people to feel not uh, beleaguered and pathetic, but instead as rights holders, when they make mm -hmm. that claim, that you're asking me to do that, that's an assertion of dignity. And it seems like to, I mean, from the other side of it, it would make, you know, it would be easier as well, because even though the government in, seems like a machine, it's run by people, people who, you know, would benefit from less sludge too, because they would, you know, in its, in its rawest form, the government's here to help, right? We're to provide help to the people they serve. Um, it's a service, it's a service job. Um, and it, like it would be easier to serve people without this barrier as well. So it's a barrier, not for one side, it's a two-sided issue there. And like, do you, would you think from the other side, the other, the other side's perspective of it, it would be, you know, beneficial? Completely. So I think you have a great point. And 
I'll draw on my experience working for President Obama to uh, give it a little uh, specificity. Um, when I was in the White House, President Obama um, was quite concerned about administrative burdens and work requirements and directed me to ask departments of the government that impose the most to reduce. Mm -hmm. And we didn't want to do something unreasonable, so we asked them to reduce by a certain amount, which we thought was very manageable. And we asked them, I asked them to come meet in the Roosevelt Room to discuss their plans. And uh, their plans uh, were extremely ambitious, much more ambitious than we had asked for. And I think it's, it's two things. First, if President of the United States, through his employee, that is yours truly, ask a cabinet department to do something they want to deliver. They don't want to be um, you know, unresponsive. Mm -hmm. And also, I think they thought that, look, if we move from paper to electronic, or if we take a form from, it has to be filled out quarterly to it has to be filled out annually, or if we make it so that it has 15 questions rather than 50 questions, that makes life easier for us too. That saves mm -hmm. us time then we only have to deal with the form once a year rather than four times a year. And we don't have to reality check all these questions or we electronic is just less expensive and it can be maybe very mechanical processing. Mm -hmm. So the public officials often are gainers from mm -hmm. slug reduction. I'm thinking now of hospitals and medical care Right. A lot of the cost of medical care in the United States, which is too high, it's because of the administrative burdens that nurses and doctors and hospitals have to bear. And mm. if you cut them, uh, it's good for patients in a couple of ways. First, it's good that the patients don't have to worry about the stuff and give up because the forms are too terrible. I should mm. say, just parenthetically, I have a friend in a European country, which I'll go nameless, who just told mm. me this week that she gave up in seeking medical care because in the waiting room, there were too many people and it took mm -hmm. hours and hours and hours. That was time sludge. And she mm -hmm. thought, I can't be here for five hours. It's just one more. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope she's gonna be fine, but that's, that shows you the, the very harmful effect of sludge in medicine. If you reduce the forms and simplify everything, the hospitals and doctors and nurses can spend time dealing with patients and not right. dealing with forms, and their mm -hmm. own expense goes down, and at least some of those savings will be passed on to patients. And that, I mean, that brings me to another point that um, sludge is, another point I want to talk about is sludge being, you know, not just paperwork, it's time, and it's money, which I feel like, you know, seems like a very, and not to, to not to put like it in this specific term, but like kind of insidious thing that sludge does, which is like take away from people who like if I am working a, a job that's and I'm living paycheck to paycheck, I'm working minimum wage, I can't afford to to maybe get a form wrong and face a penalty fee, or maybe you know miss this specific form and have to pay this amount of money to catch up. It seems like, or even need like expedite process. There's usually, a, there's sometimes a monetary cost to it. Like, it seems like 
you know, that's a big thing for a lot of people. And that deters them from even trying, you know, there's a, there's that sense of lack of trying. How, how does that like, how does that get to that point for like it to be there? Like even historically, like we were talking about, you know, recently in the past 20-ish years, but historically, how does it lead up to that point where people are just not even bothering with it anymore? Well, it might be because people think, look, I can spend the next three hours uh, enjoying my life or mm -hmm. seeing friends, or I can spend struggling with a seven-page form that I can't understand, mm -hmm. and it, they might think that's not hard. I won't struggle with the long form. Mm -hmm. Or they might think I can spend those hours having you know, a good time or facing a problem that I need to face involving my kid, or I can deal with the forms. And they might think not I'll give up, but I'll do the forms tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And then tomorrow they think the same thing. And, and the day when they do the forms, that never comes. Right. And I'm describing something that sounds a little maybe trivial and silly, but mm -hmm. the take-up rate for programs, benefit programs in the United States is often somewhere between 40 and 60 percent. Mm -hmm. I was a literature major, not a math major in college, but if mm -hmm. the take-up rate is between 40 and 60 percent, even I know, then the non-take-up rate is between 40 and 60 percent. Mm -hmm. That's horrible that mm -hmm. half of the people are, for el are eligible for something aren't getting it. Mm -hmm. If it's something that might involve helping them get an education or helping them get job training mm -hmm. or helping them get a license to do something, that, that 40 to 60%, that's a terrible number. So if we can bring the, the take-up rate way up, like for social security benefits, the take-up rate is very high. So the percentage of people over the age of whatever who don't get social security, it's very low. It's because the program's so easy, the level of sludge is tiny once you're eligible and it's just there basically. And uh, we need to move in that direction for other programs. I'll give you one example, which is the earned income tax credit, which is something that really changes lives. It helps poor people um, not only you know, get money, but get, uh, healthier and less hungry. And the kids who are beneficiaries of families that have earned income tax credit, they show years later uh, improvements even in what kind of education they get. So it's a great program. Last I looked, the take-up rate for the earned income tax credit was around 80%. Now that's better than 40%, but that means that uh, one in five of eligible Americans don't benefit from this great program. What are we going to do about that? Mm -hmm. There has to be an answer to that question. Um, and if we were determined to knock that percentage up from 80, let's say, to 95, we could do that. And why, hypothetically, fully hypothetically, couldn't we just, you know, enroll the people who needed it? Why couldn't the people who needed to just be enrolled in it? You know, why do they need to? Because it seems like there is a you know, with these forms and processes, a lack of um, awareness of humanity. People, we're humans, we're human beings. We falter, we make mistakes, we make errors. One of my favorite lines from a TV show is the reason, you know, the reason we all have pens, erasers on pencils is because we all make mistakes. 
we all make mistakes, we all do these things, but it seems like, you know, there's a lack of awareness in that with a lot of these, um, with this sludge. Like if I'm late to something, if I'm late to a meeting, if I'm late to the DMV, if I have uh, to go to work, but it's the day before my license expires, stuff like that. So, I like, think I'm ask this. Uh, we're all in a lot of meetings these days on Zoom. Yeah, right. I've been in a ton of meetings in which really experienced and very smart people mm -hmm. forget to press the unmute button. <laughs> right yeah that's i mean i i have been there i i am one of these people <laughs> me too all of us it's just yeah. what say about the eraser on the pencil and the fact that we forget to unmute ourselves is it's not that we're dumb it's not that we're confused it's that we're human we make mm -hmm. mistakes and your point about automaticity for the internet income tax rate, I'll give you an analogy. And this is something that was done in the Obama administration that I got to be involved in. There's mm -hmm. a program that gives poor kids um, free breakfast and lunch. Mm -hmm. It's a very widely approved program. Mm -hmm. So in school, you get a free lunch, free breakfast, and it's nutritious if you're poor. And um, I've, but, I've actually worked in schools who've been a part of that program, and it's, it's amazing. It's a great program. Mm -hmm. At one point, it's much better now. The take-up rate wasn't nearly as high as it should be. And the reason was sludge. The parents had to fill out forms. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly why the percentage was as not high as it was. And the solution is your solution. And you don't need to know the answer about why exactly it wasn't higher to know what the solution is. It could be that the parents were scared. They got a note mm -hmm. from the they had to fill it out. No one loves to get a note from the government. Maybe if you fill it out inaccurately, you go to jail. It may mm -hmm. be they know how to fill it out. It's, it's not the simplest form in the world. It may mm -hmm. be they're suspicious. It might be that they were just really busy dealing with mm -hmm. other things. So the, the solution was, it's called direct certification. And it means the kids, if the school or the locality knows the kids are eligible, no one has to fill out any form. They're automatically in. Right. And at last count, 15 million kids in the United States were enrolled in direct certification or one of its uh, sibling programs. Mm. And that's number 15 million. I confess that that's the only government initiative I got to have some involvement in mm -hmm. that I have a hard time talking about without crying. Mm. Wow. 15 million kids. And mm -hmm. if we saw pictures of 12 of those kids who are you know, our fellow Americans who are poor and mm. you know, their year is going to be much better. And so is their families because they get free school meals. Mm. What they that possible? Sludge, in this case, not reduction, sludge removal. They're in. Mm. Right. And I mean, I feel like a big, um, a big thing we haven't talked about with sludge too is you know lack of awareness of stuff like something like that we wouldn't know like unless it's like a lot of people don't have the time to know about things we don't have the time to educate ourselves on you know certain terminology and things and how like you know not all of us are lawyers we don't get to we don't know how to read the fine print of stuff too so like it's just i mean 
there's so much there's so much to it it's such a big topic and i mean that's why i mean it's great you wrote a book on this and to like learn more about this a large topic and a little book i wanted the book not to be full of sludge right and that's wow that's a great um tagline for it short book because i didn't want it to be full of sludge that's a great that's a great way to advertise it um no i mean and I want to talk about, you know, something else that's in the title of the book. What do we do about it? What did, what do we, what is, what is in even, in even like a hypothetical or hope from you? What is, what is your hopeful, a hope for like taking care of this problem? So it depends on who, who we are, who are trying to handle the problem. Mm-hmm. So suppose you have a, a company, it can be a little company or a big company, it can be a bookstore. You can think what level of sludge are we imposing on, let's say, employees or on Mm -hmm. customers? What do they have to do? And is that really justified? So we can do an informal audit, which might involve just seeing in a week our employees, let's say, spending 10% of their time on forms. Are customers spending 10% of their time on forms, or is it less than 1% of their time on forms? If it's anything significant, we can think, how do we cut it? And uh, this isn't hypothetical. There's uh, a lot of work happening at the United Nations, actually, on sludge reduction. This has become an initiative there, and it's something that has gotten a lot of attention in Australia where people who are working with uh, institutions are thinking, uh, how can we ask what sludge we're imposing and how do we reduce it? If you're in a government, let's say a state or local government, you can think for people who are dealing with you, they might be uh, truck drivers, they might be people who have complaints about city services, They might be victims of domestic violence who are trying to get help. They might be people who are trying to benefits for some program for the elderly. What do they have to do to get the benefit? Mm -hmm. And to to ask, you know, in some way that's a little bit systematic, what does that look like? How many hours? What's a week like for them? Mm -hmm. And then to think, is that justified? Right. Tell you, as I say, I'm speaking as author, not as, as a public official, but mm-hmm. the this is all completely public that the Department of uh, Homeland Security through the, uh, uh, the office in charge of immigration issued a request for information from the public about barriers and burdens in dealing with that institution. So if you're dealing with citizenship and immigration, uh, it might involve a green card, it might involve something else, what barriers and burdens are there? And that uh, document in the Federal Register, which not everyone reads, produced over 7,000 comments. 7,000 comments. That's a lot. Referring to barriers and burdens that the people who wrote the comments thought were excessive. Now, this is an instrument by which we can ask, through whatever means we have, people who are our employees, are our customers, are are the people whom we're serving, um, whatever institution we're in, what are we doing wrong with respect to burdens and paperwork? If a hospital does that, I'll I'll mention a random city, if a hospital does that in Los Angeles, 
they're going to get they're going to hear an earful, and some of what they hear is going to be justified, and right. then they'll probably do at least one thing better. And I mean, that no, that's. That's the hope, right? That's the hope. That's the dream. That's the dream for like change and the systemic change. We were like that everyone I feel like is it's on the tip of everyone's tongue right now. Systemic change and hope for a better future, even not even for not for us, but for future generations and people to like for the kids, for the children, for the future children, for them to, you know, have a good future. um, we have to wrap it up, sadly, but I, even though I'm having such a great conversation about this, and I could talk about this for hours, but the last thing I want to ask you about, and this is more about the book and you personally, how, I mean, I couldn't imagine writing a book like this without, you know, having an emotional component behind it, having, you know, you're seeing yourself in the light and seeing, you're seeing how you personally are affected by this and, have seen people close to you affected by this. How was that process of, you know, being so close to a topic that affects everyone, everyone in some way or another? Like, how did how did you feel like emotionally, your emotional journey throughout it? Yeah, that's what, that's it, your emotional journey through it. Thank you for asking that. Uh, the first sentence of the book is, I think this book is a product of a failure. And so, it was a product of my own um, failure when I was in the government the previous go around to do enough to cut sludge. If I had it to do over again, I would have been more ambitious there. And I felt, uh, uh, what was the right word? I felt uh, relieved to be able to say publicly that those who are privileged to serve the public should do better than I did. There was a feeling of relief. Um, Odd, but that's how it felt. Some of the book was really fun to write. So I find the term sludge, which comes from my great co-author, Richard Thaler, who uh, wrote a book called called Nudge. uh, And I I explored the possibility of writing this book with him. And he said, know yourself. I said, yes, sir. Yes, boss. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, I find the word sludge funny in its mm-hmm. vividness. And some of the absurdity of the stories I tell uh, and the fiendishness of use of sludge to um, get money from people, I found as well as in some cases tragic, in other cases, it's just comical. It's like a TV show where the hero is confounded by sludge and the audience laughs. And I felt that in some of it. So I really enjoyed writing that. Uh, Some of it, I had a feeling of uh, great optimism and uh, energy. In fact, that was the the big feeling of the book was optimistic energy, that that, uh, we're gonna do something about this. And I was feeling, the book doesn't do anything, but if you're lucky, someone reads the book and that something is done. And that, I mean, what a what a goal for a book like this. I mean, it's and also the from what you started with, like taking, you know, that responsibility there is not is not an easy thing to do, but like I mean, 
it's something that I feel like more people need to see someone like you who's worked in this field, you know, say that, be able to say something like that, that you feel this way about, you can look back and look at your own uh, work and feel, you know, I could have done more. I could have seen that. We need more conversations like that because you know, that hum that, that humility and honesty is important. It's important for change. We can only grow if we can look back and say, oh, I could have done better and next time I will. That's how we grow. That's how we all grow. I, I done that so many times in my life and I feel like the best people I know have also done that. So, you know, I, I, want, I just wanna say, I very much respect and admire that part of that admission there. And thank you for doing that. Thank you for doing that. And I hope in the same way you hope people read the book and learn that. I hope people hear this too and say, you know what? I am going to be as emboldened to look back at my, my past and say, ask myself that too. So thank you for doing that. Um, and thank you for coming on the podcast today. This has been, I mean, a great episode. I've learned, I've learned so much and I hope that the listeners too, who might, who might be in that place of not, of their dealing with their own sludge, um, can look and see some hope from this podcast. Cause that's what I think your book does. It's saying there is hope for everyone in this current you know, current time and time and, you know, experience that we're having right now. Um, my last thing is, do you have anything you would like to say to the listeners and to the independent bookstore community as a whole? I do, which is that one of the great uh, founders of behavioral science mm -hmm. said that he was an optimist and that it was rational to be an optimist mm -hmm. because if you're a pessimist, you suffer twice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when you think about it, say like when the bad thing happens. So yeah. for the audience at independent bookstores, I say, let's be optimistic. And also to all of you, profound gratitude that you are foundational to our culture and to our uh, heritage and our highest aspirations. Wow. No, that's, I mean, I'm going to be thinking about that for the rest of my day now. Like, yeah. If you're pessimist, you think I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just, you've, you kind of unlocked something for me right there. And no listeners go, go to the skylight right now or to your local bookstore. You'll see sludge on our podcast display. I know some of you know where it is, but for those who don't, it's going to be right at the front of our uh, main bookstore. Come on in, grab a copy, look through it and, you know, learn about this, learn about this. That's so important. That's affected every one of us or will affect every one of us and yeah it's go do what do what the bookstore wants you to do and learn um but yeah thank you so much Cass this has thank been such a great fun. conversation really, really really had a great time learning on this podcast episode and thank you to all the listeners for coming back I hope you have a beautiful beautiful and optimistic day today thank you Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. <laughs>